0: Well, let me invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're still in uh, the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to be looking at um, him eventually leaving Ephesus and making his way through Macedonia down to Corinth. And then he'll backtrack all the way to Jerusalem eventually where he'll be arrested, and then eventually go to Rome. So we're kind of in that, uh, still the, basically the, uh, the latter part of the third missionary journey. So I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 20, and I'll read the first six verses. And we're primarily going to be looking at Paul's writing ministry uh, during this time. And uh, as we are reminded of the Word of God, Scripture tells us that the Word is uh, really not the result of the will of man, but it is written as they are moved by the Spirit of God, inspired to write verbally the Word of God for our benefit and for our blessing. So with this in mind, please give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter twenty starting in verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, now this is the big riot that took place in Ephesus at the theater that we looked at last week. Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, He came to Greece. Think of Corinth when you think of Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. So, here we are in Acts chapter 20. He's still at Paul is still at Ephesus. And he's going to be leaving Ephesus shortly and moving on to Macedonia and eventually down to Corinth. Now this uh, stage of Paul's third missionary journey, uh, the, the Holy Spirit was very active. Not only in the miracles and the signs that Paul was performing, but he was also very active in inspiring the Apostle Paul to write Scripture. And during this phase that we are reading about, he will write 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the book of Romans. And I thought as we're moving through the book of Acts, it would be helpful when we get to those places to stop and pause and to very briefly reflect upon those letters to give us something of an idea of what's going on in Paul's heart, the issues he's dealing with, the divine counsel that he's given, the instruction, the exhortation, and all of that comes into play in these short verses. This will also give us uh, some context as we read these three letters to know kind of where Paul is and what he's really facing. So when you look at this, right now he's still at Ephesus And before he leaves Ephesus, he's going to write a letter, several letters actually, to the church at Corinth. Now, when you look at this, Paul actually, from what we can figure out, wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. And as we walk through those briefly, the first one we don't have any record of, other than Paul mentions it in his first letter that we call First Corinthians. But in 1 Corinthians five nine, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So that's a letter that he wrote to them before he wrote 1 Corinthians. Okay? So we have the first letter, which the Spirit of God was not pleased to preserve for us. And then he writes 1 Corinthians... And when he writes 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a number of problems and issues that have arisen within the church. We'll look at those in just a moment. But things got so bad, Paul decides he needs to from Ephesus to go to Corinth for a quick trip because things were really bad at Corinth. So he makes reference to that, this quick trip to Corinth and then back to Ephesus when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1. He says, I determined that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So this quick trip that Luke does not record for us in Acts was a very troubling trip for the Apostle Paul. He was full of anguish. And he also mentions in 2 Corinthians that he will come to them a third time. So that confirms he must have made this this unknown trip that's not recorded in the book of Acts. Then he writes... When he comes back to Ephesus after that quick trip to Corinth, a trip that uh, caused him much sorrow, he then writes another letter to the Corinthians, which we do not have. And again, he refers to that in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, "...out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears." Now that probably doesn't refer to 1 Corinthians. You read 1 Corinthians, you don't get this anguish, this tearful letter that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. So this is probably a third letter that he is now writing to the Corinthians to deal with this explosion of problems that occurred within the church. Corinth was really a cesspool of moral and theological issues and problems. And so Paul writes this letter of many tears to them to rebuke, to counsel, to try to bring about solutions uh, to some of their problems. And then after that letter of many tears, then he will write Second Corinthians from Macedonia. So a number of letters here that we're looking at. But uh, only some of them made them in the canon because of the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God just chose not to include those other letters. So what we're looking at is Paul, let's backtrack, he's still in Ephesus, he's been there for three years, and sometime during his stay in Ephesus, he is getting reports from what's going on at Corinth. Corinth. Now Paul was the mother of the church, the spiritual father, the spiritual mother of the church at Corinth and many other churches. He's maintaining communication. He's ministering because they're his children. So he loves them. So he's still parenting them in the faith, if you will. So at some point, he gets a report that's not good from Chloe's people about problems going on at Corinth. And he's going to write to them 1 Corinthians. So it might be good for us to just kind of briefly overview and look at what he deals with in 1 Corinthians. Notice Roman numeral 2, problems raised by Chloe's report. Chloe was a woman at Corinth. Apparently her people, either someone in her household, communicates with Paul and tells him there's a lot of things, there's a lot of issues going on here in the church. We need help. So 1 Corinthians is going to deal with a variety of issues that Chloe's people inform Paul that's going on within the church at Corinth. One of them, of course, is divisions. Some are saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulus. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. And God obviously has uh, is the one who saves them and they have developed this party spirit within the church. is creating cliques. Is creating divisions within the church. And Paul is very quick and adamant to remind them look, I didn't save you. Apollos didn't save you. Peter didn't. Christ is the only one you need to worship. He's the focal point. Put your attention upon him. Boast in him, not in us. We're just his lowly servants. He has created. Chosen you and called you into fellowship with Himself. It's by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. It's all for the glory of God. And He reminds them that they are really nothing. It's all Christ. So in chapter 3, He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Worship God. Focus on Christ. So he deals with this issue of divisions within the church. God is everything. We are nothing. And then there are these reports of all these moral issues, moral problems, incest within the church, lawsuits, believer suing other believers and going to unbelievers, uh, pagan uh, courts to adjudicate these issues. And then there's immorality going on within the church. And so Paul spends time giving them godly counsel and rebukes and guidance on these different uh, issues that are going on. And then there's a bunch of problems that were raised by their letter to Paul. They had written back to the Apostle Paul at some point with a lot of questions about the faith. How do Christians live out our faith in light of all these issues going on? So, the rest of 1 Corinthians is dealing with all these issues that they raised in their letter to Paul. So, marriage and divorce. And by the way, these are God inspired wisdom words for us today as well. Have struggles in your marriage, issues on divorce, and working through all that stuff, go to chapter 7 food offered to idols, and the threat of idolatry, and the pull of of the pagan society to to pull us back into the world. Go to chapters 8 through 10 where he discusses idolatry and and how to deal with that in a God-honoring way. And also principles of Christian liberty come into play there as well. Then he deals with worship principles, principles of headship and the Lord's Supper and My goodness, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Some people would come and eat their food all by themselves and not share in the agape meal with others. And so some were hungry and others were well fed and they weren't loving one another. So he deals with principles of worship. Then he deals with one of the biggest problems with spiritual gifts. They were a very gifted church, but they were abusing that gift. There was too much pride. There was too much selfishness And desire to elevate one another uh, within the church. And so he has to rebuke them and admonish them for some of the abuse that was going on. And exercising the spiritual gifts within the fellowship. Within their corporate meetings. And then they had a lot of issues about the bodily resurrection. Because from their background, mainly the Gentiles, they didn't have any concept of a bodily resurrection. So this is new terrain for them. So they had a lot of questions about it. So in chapter 15, he does a masterful job of of affirming and asserting Christ's resurrection and our resurrection also to come. And then finally, he deals with uh, one of the issues close to Paul's heart, and that is collecting money for the poor saints back in Jerusalem, the Jewish church back in Jerusalem. So one of the issues that we get with in 1 Corinthians, now he's still in Ephesus, and he's got his own set of issues to deal with in Ephesus. But he's a parent. He is, he is given birth by the grace of God. God has used him to give birth to all these other churches. So he's still parenting them. So he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth to help them grow in maturity into the things of Christ. So what we see is that the Corinthians, they were a very gifted church. The Spirit of God had give them an abundance of spiritual gifts. Uh, we're told in 1 Corinthians 1, He says that in everything you are enriched in Him and all speech and knowledge. So they had the gift of prophecy. They had the gift of tongues. They had the gift of teaching. All these, these uh, gifts of speaking and also all knowledge. They had this discernment and all these other things to a certain degree. So that you're not lacking in any gift. So it was a very blessed church. And yet, they were very immature. They were men of flesh. They were infants in Christ. They were very carnal. They were very controlled by the flesh. So in other words, the problem with the church at Corinth was they were very, very gifted but very, very immature and fleshly. So that you can be full of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and knowledge, and yet be lacking in the fruit of the Spirit. They excelled in tongues and prophecy and knowledge, but they failed when it came to showing love and compassion and tenderness. And that's why he rebukes them in chapter 8 verse 1 by saying knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, knowledge is extremely important in the Christian life. I will never undermine the importance of knowledge. Uh, If you want a big fire, you need a lot of wood. And knowledge is wood in the Christian life. The problem is, wood does not burn on its own. You need fire from heaven to ignite the wood. That's why with Elijah, when he built his, his altar to God, a big pile of wood, it would not burn until God sent the fire down. And the problem with the Corinthians is they had a lot of wood, but they didn't have much fire. And so that with the wood only, with the small little fire, they were growing in arrogance and pride and not love. They had the gifts of the Spirit. They didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul is exhorting them. And he is serious about this. Because they lack love. With all of the knowledge and all of the gifts, they lacked love. And without love, the gifts of the Spirit, the knowledge, the ability to prophesy, speak in tongues, does not profit. And that's why he is emphasizing so much in the book of 1 Corinthians, just the priority of love. That's why he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, if I have the gift of tongues and yet I'm not exercising it in love for my brethren, then I'm just a big old gong being hit. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, my goodness, you'd think he's a super saint. He's speaking hypothetically, of course. So as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And then he says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I sacrifice everything and surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, then it profits me nothing. So here's this church, extremely gifted, with people that have, uh, have all these different gifts of the Spirit of God, But they do not have love. And it was tearing the church apart. Too much pride. Too much arrogance. Too much self-centeredness. It's about me. And so all these cliques, these divisions within the church, the immorality because it's all about me, using their gifts not to edify the church, but to build up themselves. And so they lacked one of these important uh, credentials of love. He goes on to add in 1 Corinthians 13 that the fruit of the Spirit is vital. That love is patient and love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffer. In other words, it forgives easily. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. This is what the Corinthian church needed. They needed more love. And so he emphasizes it in a phenomenal way. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love. So they had the gifts of the Spirit without much of the fruit of the Spirit. And so he reminds them of the importance of that. And don't we need to hear that also as well? It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Christ. And it's not about how we can do for ourselves. It's about how we can minister and love other people. That's the essence. That's the greatest commandment uh, in the New Covenant. Love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, after Paul writes 1 Corinthians... Things, don't, things go downhill pretty quick. Uh, apparently, there's just a, like a like big sore, and infection just breaks out upon the body of Christ at Corinth. So Paul then needs to make this uh, quick trip to Corinth that I've mentioned already. So he's still in Ephesus, but he goes to Corinth. He tries to deal with it. And then he comes back to Ephesus. And then he writes that third letter, that letter of many tears that again we don't have reference to. And then from here, he eventually leaves Ephesus to go to Macedonia. And that really brings us to chapter 20 verse 1 of Acts. So he first goes to Troas. And he waits there because he's wanting to hear from Titus. Titus has also gone to Corinth to... Test the temperature of the church in response to that letter with many tears. Because he is really Paul is very concerned for the church at this point. And he's he's very anxious to hear from Titus, because Titus is going to tell him how they responded to that letter of many tears. And he's hoping, he's praying that they will receive it well. Because he doesn't know. I mean, the church may just explode. So he goes to Troas. He's waiting for Titus. And Titus doesn't show up. So at this point, Paul goes all the way up into Macedonia. Macedonia is Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. All that's up in Macedonia. And sometime when he's up there, he's going to meet up with Titus. And Titus is going to give him a very encouraging report About how the church at Corinth responded to that letter of many tears. And so Paul is now overjoyed. Corinth still has issues. They still have serious issues, but he's overjoyed that they express their love for Paul and that they have responded in repentance on some of the issues that he's confronted them on. So next, as he's up in Macedonia, now Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is another letter that that is really one of my favorite letters. If you have problems and struggles in the Christian life, read 1 Corinthians because Paul is dealing with a lot of that. But uh, I love 2 Corinthians because for many for many reasons it's one of Paul's most personal letters. He bears his soul. You learn more about the Apostle in Second Corinthians and probably any other book. He bears his soul and his own personal struggles, his own, his own uh, sufferings for the cause of the gospel, the things he has to endure in his ministry that you don't get in other letters. He bears his heart again for the saints, the Jewish saints back in Jerusalem. He wants to show them that uh, the Gentiles and the Jews are all one in Christ. And he also wants to sow the seeds of, of more love and fellowship within the churches. So we see several things of importance. He's also going to contend for uh, the gospel while, it, while he's there. So if you look at uh, 2 Corinthians, Roman numeral 2, Paul's ministry. And in this section, basically Paul is just delighting in his ministry of preaching the New Covenant. The Gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. And it's really a glorious section that Paul explains and and glories in in all that he's doing. All that God has uh, given him to do. Uh, His ministry and then the New Covenant ministry. And uh, he talks about how it excels the Old Covenant uh, in glory because the old covenant's glory was likened unto that glory on the face of Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai that was continually fading but the glory of Jesus Christ in the new covenant is eternal it far exceeds the glory of the old covenant so he's glorying in that he's talking about how they're just he's just an earthen mortal vessel he talks about his sufferings in chapter 4 he talks about the ministry of reconciliation He talks about uh, a call to holiness for those who are struggling with worldliness. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says, but come out from among them. Be separate. So he's he's issuing this call to holiness. He has joy in their repentance in the areas that they've repented. And then in chapter 8 and 9, he talks a lot about them preparing their financial gift that he will take back to Jerusalem for the for the Jewish saints there that are suffering. And then in Roman numeral 4, a large part of the book, or the last part of the book, is where Paul, against his will as it were, uh, has to defend himself in light of all the brutal attacks of the false prophets and the false teachers that are there uh, in Corinth. So he talks about his own boasting in the Lord, uh, he says, I will not boast in myself, but I will only boast in the Lord. And he talks about the measure of his ministry to take the gospel throughout all these areas. He exhorts them, number two, for their gullible faith. This is one of the problems that the church at Corinth still faced. They were they were too gullible. Someone comes up and says, well, I believe in Jesus. You say, well, great. And they just accept, but it's a different Jesus. And so he has to rebuke them because their faith is too gullible. And then he defends his ministry, exposes the false apostles. And then in chapter 11, my goodness, he gets into one of those autobiographical descriptions where five times he re- received the Jewish nine lashes, he was beaten with rods, he was stoned. I mean, just he gives a whole laundry list of all the sufferings. And he's doing that because the false teachers are attacking his, his credentials. They're trying to undermine His authority. And so He says, I, I, I don't want to boast, but let me tell you what God has done through me. And then He just shows all this amazing things in this letter. He also uh, boasts in His heavenly vision. And one of the things I love about 2 Corinthians, one of the things that comes out in this is that Paul shows really the, the secret to God's empowering grace in his life though he suffered immensely. And the secret that kept him persevering, the truth that kept recharging his batteries when he was worn down and weary in the ministry and the work of the Lord, was that he would take his eyes off his temporal struggles and problems and gaze upon the glory to come. And one of my favorite, again, passages is in chapter 4 when he says that though this outer man is decaying day by day, yet his inner man is being renewed. And the inner man is being renewed while he looks at this incredible glory that awaits him. The surpassing weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And you know, we we need to learn from the Apostle Paul. When we become weary and we become tired and and the struggle becomes so difficult that we can be renewed in our soul as well if we look at the glory of Christ and, and feast our souls upon what the Lord Jesus has waiting for us. And that's just a glorious passage. And he comes back to it in chapter 12 and he glories in this being caught up to the third heavens and saw things that he can't even describe to, to anybody. So it's a glorious passage indeed. But one of the issues in 2 Corinthians, one of the problems, even though they've repented and Paul rejoices in their repentance on many levels, there's still some serious concerns that are going on at the church of Corinth. So in chapter 11, for example, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel that you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. In other words, that's, that's a rebuke. You are far too gullible. You are far too willing to allow people to come into the church and preach a different Jesus than the one you heard from us. Or you have received a different spirit or a different gospel than the one that Christ gave to us to preach to you. And he rebukes them for their overly simplistic gullibility. They're too easily deceived by Satan from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ. So there's still more work to be done at Corinth. He's up in Macedonia. He's writing Second Corinthians, anticipating coming down there shortly. Well, he stays up in Macedonia for a period of time, and he's ministering, and he eventually will uh, make his way down to Corinth. And he stays, we are told, for three months in verse three, Acts 20 verse three. He's in Greece for three months, so he's spending three months, probably all that time in Corinth, dealing with all these issues, going over the Gospel again, trying to ground them in the Gospel because they're too easily misled by another Jesus, another Spirit, and another Gospel. So he's pouring out his heart and his life to them again. Trying to get them back to that firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And it's while he's at Corinth with his heart full of the Gospel trying to relay that foundation again at Corinth that he writes the letter to the Romans. The masterpiece of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Of all the books of the Bible. There is no greater exposition of the Gospel of God's grace in Christ than the book of Romans. So now you know where his mind is. He is there defending the Gospel to the Corinthians who are beginning to stray in different ways. And his mind is so full of this uh, glorious theme that he writes the book of Romans. Uh, Again, the masterpiece of the Gospel. He's teaching the very same things to the church at Corinth. And now he puts it in a letter and sends it off to Rome where he has never been as of yet. So we come to the book of Romans. How do you describe the book of Romans in a couple minutes? Uh, It's impossible, but here's an outline. So the theme of the book of Romans is in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that the righteousness of God is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To all who believe. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. So then in... Roman numeral three. He talks about transgression. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody has broken the laws of God. Everybody deserves the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the wages of sin is death. Everybody's sinned. Jews have sinned. Gentiles have sinned. The whole world has sinned and is accountable to a holy God for breaking His laws. We have broken our laws outwardly, his laws outwardly. We have broken his laws inwardly. We are all guilty and worthy of the penalty of death and hell. So that's how he starts out. He's laying the foundation of sin. Because if you do not understand the depth of your sin, you will not understand the gospel. If you think you're a good person, you do not understand the gospel. If you don't understand that your sin, That as a result of your transgressions against God, the only thing you deserve is to burn in hell forever. You will not understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the problem with the world today because everybody thinks they're good people. Everybody thinks, well, surely God will grade me on the curve. And my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and I'll go to heaven. That's a lie from Satan. So he begins by laying this firm foundation. No, you are a sinner. You're accountable to God. You deserve the wrath and judgment of God. And you will get it too if you do not repent and believe in God's only provision for salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. So from transgression, he then goes to justification. That the very righteousness that we need as a sinner to go into the presence of a righteous and a holy God is not a righteousness I can produce. It's not a righteousness I can create because I'm a sinner and I've fallen short of His righteousness. But God will give you that free gift of the righteousness of His sinless Son freely to all who believe in Him by faith alone. And so in the section on justification, chapter 3-5, through part of chapter 5, He emphasizes the imputed righteousness, the gift of God's righteousness that you and I can have by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. We cannot produce it, but we can receive it. It's God's righteousness which qualifies us to enter into His presence. Justification. And then sanctification, because it's far more than just having your sins forgiven and having righteousness. No, we gotta live out the faith, and we gotta live for Christ, and, and you're no longer under law, but under grace, so sin will not be your master. You will not be its slave forever, because grace has come into your life. And this is how you live out your, your faith. You continually present yourselves to God as a vessel, an instrument of righteousness to Him. You continually present yourself to him as alive from the dead. That we've been raised up in Christ. So he goes through this marvelous section on sanctification, practical righteousness in 6 through 8. And then vindication in 9 through 11, where Paul vindicates God's righteousness. And sovereignly saving the chosen ones among the Jews and among the Gentiles. And so he vindicates. When some were saying, well then, look, Israel has turned away from God. So God's promises to Israel must have failed. And Paul vindicates, they have not failed. They're being fulfilled exactly as God promised. You've just misunderstood it. So he corrects their misunderstanding and talks about the Israel within Israel, the spiritual Israel within the nation of Israel. And they and they alone are the ones to whom the promises of grace and salvation are made. The remnant. And he's saving Gentiles as well. And then he comes to chapters 12 through part of 15 where he deals with the practical outworking of righteousness. And then he gets into all the Practical explanations of how the Gospel should be lived out and loving one another and praying for one another and considering others as more important than ourselves. And just many practical issues of living out the Christian life. Just marvelous stuff. This is just how blessed we are to have these letters. And then he closes with his plans to come and visit them and hopefully they will help launch him out into Spain. Because Paul's heart is to take the gospel wherever he can. So in looking at this uh, section of... um, I'm not getting my click. If you could advance that, thank you. So in looking at Acts chapter 20, what we're seeing is this little section of Paul's third missionary journey, where he is actually uh, being moved by the Spirit of God to write these three letters which have been such a blessing to the church and continue to be a blessing uh, to the church. And what we see again, just by way of review, is that in 1 Corinthians, this is a place to go for problem solving. Because Paul is dealing with so many problems. So many different kinds of problems. You need to study the book of 1 Corinthians. Whatever problems you have, you may find your answer in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Scriptures tell us that Thy Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my my path. And again, Psalm 119, Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. The greatest counselor we have is Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit illuminating the Word of God to our heart and our mind. That's our greatest counselor. And so the testimonies of God, the Word of God are my counselors. So if you're struggling with any of those issues that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians, you need to go there. And remember, one of his main points to the Corinthian church was that love is a priority. That knowledge without love breeds pride. And that they should value faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. He also shows his heart for Christ to help those who are struggling. I mean, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul, a brother in Christ, seeing where his brothers are hurting and going to them to minister truth to them. And in this, I think He's a great example for us. To have a heart to minister to other people. And it's so easy because life is so hectic and so crazy to just kind of focus in on our lives and our little problems. But Paul was all about ministering to other people. Did he have problems himself? He had huge problems. Even in his own sanctification, Romans 7, his own struggle with the flesh. I mean, yeah, But he has a heart to minister to other people. And we're to consider other people as more important than ourselves. Be willing to sacrifice to reach out and minister to other people. That's what you get in 1 Corinthians. Here's a man of God who has a heart, who's willing to sacrifice great extent to go and minister to those who are struggling. And then from Macedonia, he writes 2 Corinthians... And again, I think 2 Corinthians is so special to me personally because we see how God's grace sustained and empowered Paul in times of trouble and suffering and persecution. I haven't suffered much persecution. But we all have struggles. We all get worn out. We all get weary. And yet the grace of God sustained him. And he tells us how God did that in his heart. And these are great passages of encouragement. And then he also exhorts them to to, uh, give a generous gift to those who are in need. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And if you look at this, if you go back to Acts chapter 20, and after he leaves Corinth, and he's traveling up back through Macedonia, and then look at verse 4 of Acts chapter 20. He lists all these guys who are going with him. And they're all going back with him ultimately to Jerusalem. That's their destination. And he mentions Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy. Timothy's from Lystra. Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And all of these are traveling with Paul because they're all taking money back to the church in Jerusalem. And I wanted you to just see if you could advance the slide, please. This is where all these guys come from. And if you look at this, do you notice anything? You have some from Galatia. You have Gaius from Derby. Timothy, he's from Lystra. Then you have Tychicus and Trophimus from Ephesus. Then you have Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Then Sopater from Berea. All these guys are Gentiles. Now Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. The rest of these are all Gentiles. They've all collected money. And they're all going with Paul back to the church at Jerusalem to show them, look, we are your brethren in Christ. We are the fellow members of the new covenant with you. We love you. And here is our token of our love. And so all of these guys throughout all of the different churches that Paul planted have now come together with this. must have been a gigantic financial gift to go back and help all those poor, suffering Jewish believers back in the mother church, if you will. And another beautiful thing about this is designed to break down the racial barriers within the church. Because there's still strife between Jews and Gentiles within the church. That's a a barrier that takes a while to, to break down. But the gospel breaks down all kinds of barriers. And if you look up, for example, at Thessalonica, Aristarchus and Secundus. Aristarchus, that name comes from our word that we get aristocrat from. He probably was an aristocrat of some kind. He probably came from a family that was very noble, very wealthy, uh, had a lot of influence, and yet the Lord saved him. And he's traveling with a man by the name of Secundus. Secundus means second. And that name was normally given to the slave of second rank. Because people who owned slaves back then a lot of times would just give them a number. First, come here, give me some another cup of coffee. Secundus, go out and slop the pigs. Or whatever it might have been. So they ranked them and gave them names based on their number. So here are the two representatives from the church of Thessalonica. One's an aristocrat. And the other's probably a 2nd rank slave. And yet they are brothers in Christ. Joining hands. To carry the gift of this monetary blessing back to their brothers and sisters from the Jewish church of Jerusalem. See, the gospel breaks down racial barriers. The gospel breaks down economic barriers. The gospel breaks down social barriers because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see that beautifully laid out as he goes through the, as Luke goes through the the the, uh, the items of all these different names telling us where they came from just to emphasize the unity and the love that should be within the body of Christ well second corinthians is a is a glorious book uh where paul is exhorting the corinthians to raise this money and to join with the other churches in presenting it to the jerusalem church He also exhorts them to know Christ because they were waffling on the Gospel. So again, 2 Corinthians is is a wonderful book to read and study. And then finally, if you'd advance a slide please. We come to Romans, the treasure house of the Gospel of Saving Grace. Where where Paul describes God's grace to save in chapters 1-11 through and God's grace to respond in chapters 12 through 16. It's a wonderful book that we have benefited every time we read it and study it. It's always a blessing. Again, Psalm 119 says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And that's what all of Scripture is for us. But if you need to ground yourself in the Gospel, and we all need to be grounded in the Gospel, we need to be Spending time reading and meditating upon the truths of the book of Romans. There is no greater exposition of it in all of Scripture. So this is one of the richest times in Paul's life where God uses him to write three uh, books of the New Testament. And these are precious and inspired letters that were written to build up the church, to edify them, To make them grow in Christ and they are given for us today as well. They continue to teach us the mind of Christ and we are continually reminded of their their importance to read them, to meditate upon their truths so that we can be transformed and that we can be changed by the grace of God. Well, hopefully that uh, will kind of bring us up to where the book of Acts has brought us in terms of Paul's writing ministry. And uh, he's going to find his way through Macedonia and end up at Troas. And he's going to preach a very long sermon. And he's going to kill somebody in the midst of his sermon. Well, someone was going to die. They're going to fall asleep and die. So we'll see how that sad, tragic event happened. And uh, we'll look at that, Lord willing, next time. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, thank You for all of Scripture. For all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And Lord, we thank You especially for First and Second Corinthians and the book of Romans and just how rich they are and how much they teach us not only of the heart of the Apostle Paul, but just truths to live by. Words inspired by God for our edification and blessing even in the 21st century. So Father, help us all to be grounded in Christ and the Gospel. And help us to to be drawn to these books of Scripture. That we might read them and be blessed by them. And be built up in our faith that we might be changed and transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.